Well, thank you, ladies, and thank you for being here uh, this morning. We're so glad you're here. Uh, welcome to Living Hope Church. Uh, my name is Rondi. I'm the pastor here, if you're new. Uh, if you have children, uh, kindergarten to third grade, uh, they can dismiss out the back uh, for Children's Church. Uh, and the rest of you, if you're going to stay with me, you can turn to John uh, chapter 6. That's where we're headed. All right, well, welcome. Uh, we said welcome. We're continuing today in our series that we've been calling Miraculous Encounters. Uh, and in this series, we are looking at some of the miracles of Jesus. Uh, and today in John chapter 6, we come to perhaps the most uh, famous of all the miracles. Uh, today, we encounter a story that is known and referenced regularly in pop culture, music, movies, and everyday conversations. Now, if you're with us last week, uh, we saw Jesus uh, in that sermon feed a large uh, crowd of people with just five loaves of barley bread and two small fish. The people in that story ate until they were full. They celebrated the miracle and they wanted more of this Jesus guy and this incredible welfare program. And in that sermon, we spent most of our time looking at how the disciples responded to the crisis they found themselves in. One of the disciples immediately looked to his own abilities and resources. Another scoured the crowd and looked for others to help. Other disciples denied the problem. But it was one little boy that turned all he had over to Jesus that was the example to follow. I think we all respond uh, in the same way to problems somewhere on that spectrum. Some of us will always look to ourselves. Some of us will, will look to friends, family, acquaintances, blogs, and Google. Uh, and yet others of us are deniers, hoping that our problems will just fade away. But what we saw last week was that none of those are the answer. It is Jesus alone that provides a solution to our greatest need, which is our sin. And it is Jesus alone that can provide peace in the midst of the trials. So if you missed last week's sermon and you're interested in checking it out, it's on our website, YouTube, uh, or Apple Podcasts. But that's the context for this miracle we come to today. The disciples have just seen Jesus do the incredible and feed upwards of 20,000 plus with just five loaves of bread and two small fish. Uh, you would imagine the disciples right now are riding an emotional faith high that we can't comprehend. But another storm is coming. And when the storm comes, just the next day, the doubt will immediately return. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate with that. I've seen Jesus do some incredible things in my life and in the life of those I love. And yet doubt seems to be my natural response time and time again when the trial comes and the storm arises. When the health crisis happens, when the job falls through, when someone makes a decision uh, that hurts, when the relationship crumbles, my immediate response seems to always be, I don't think God can come through this time. My response is, how can I solve this problem? And yet time and time again, God has been faithful and he has provided in ways that were often different but better than mine. So today we're going to see how God uses those storms in our lives, where he is in the midst of the storm, and how good and faithful he is. So we're in John chapter 6, uh, and we're reading verses 16 through 24. Uh, John writes, when evening came, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew, grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. 
The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that, that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this passage, Lord, and we thank you for the promises and truth it contains. Uh, God, I pray that, that whatever the storm or the trial that we are walking through today, Lord, that you would uh, just reveal your nearness and your presence to us today. And God, Lord, that we would trust our circumstances and our life uh, to you. Whether that be for the first time experiencing your forgiveness of sin or whether it be just uh, turning over our burdens and our struggles and our trials to you. God, we thank you that you are near, that you are able, that you are faithful, and that you are good. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to adjust the stage real quick. I feel like I've got somebody like just chilling on my left shoulder, so I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, so when we drop into a passage of Scripture like today, we always have to figure out the context. The context is the king. We have to figure out what is going on in the passage before we start to draw out application, and, and we fall into that temptation of making it say what we want to say. So as we said last week, he just fed uh, the 5,000, which was 5,000 men, probably 20,000 total. But after he does it, we didn't get into this last week, but after Jesus feeds the crowd, the crowd is ready to make him their political king. Anyone that has a, 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 um, a welfare program that can feed the crowds out of thin air as opposed to trillions of dollars is a king to elect, the people say. So the people have eaten, they are excited, and they are ready to make Jesus king. Verse 14 to John 6 says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by himself, king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the Old Testament prophesied and, and promised that a Messiah, a king, was coming. And that king was Jesus, but he didn't come to be a political king. Yet for hundreds of years, the Jewish teachers had taught not of a suffering king that would save spiritually, but they had taught of a military king that would be a better version of Moses, a better version of David. They longed not to see the people restored spiritually, but they longed to see the nation of Israel restored to the splendor and power that it had under King David. They longed for a king that would deliver them from Rome, just as Moses had delivered the nation and their ancestors from Pharaoh and from the oppression of Egypt. And so this crowd, they see this miracle, they are excited, and they are ready to make Jesus their political king. They were tired of being under uh, Roman rule, they were oppressed, and they hoped to have their nation back. And they thought to themselves that Jesus could miraculously feed them and take care of their needs, that he is that perfect king. But I think, I think we can understand this. No matter what side of the political aisle we are, on, we are on, we long for great leaders that will lead us, that will do what is best for us and our country. This is why every election season we see ad after ad with men and women promising to be that Messiah-like figure that will solve all of our personal and national problems. They run essentially on two platforms. Platform one is I'm going to solve every problem you've ever had. And platform two is that guy's not going to do it. Right? We are passionate. We get excited about our political leaders. And so did the first century Jews. They saw the power of Jesus and they were ready to elevate him to the role of political king. Jesus taken all these people who had no food to eat and he miraculously fed them. 
So it makes sense. People are like, this is the guy we want ruling us. He can save us. He can solve all our problems through his power and miracles. And Jesus knew that was going to be the response. And so he begins to fade away and leave so that didn't happen. The other gospels tell us that Jesus went off to the mountain on his own to pray. And so Jesus absolutely came to be king, but he came not merely to be a political king, but he came to save souls. He came to give eternal life, to give of himself for salvation. The people, they were, they were looking for the wrong thing, the wrong kind of king. And their expectations caused them to miss the Messiah, their Savior, the King of Kings. But again, we do this same thing. There are times that we expect or want Jesus to be nothing more than a miracle worker. And we get angry and we get frustrated when he doesn't solve our problems in the moment. We don't like it when he calls us to give of ourselves, when life is trying, when we experience discipline or hardship. But Jesus didn't come just to make our lives easier in the present, but instead he came to give eternal life and so that we might grow in him. Jesus came to save. He came to seek and save that which was lost. That's mainly us. So that's our first point. Jesus came to save from sin. In John 18, 36 through 37, when Jesus is arrested and brought before Pilate, he illustrates this himself. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest uh, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate says to him, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to this truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus came not as a political ruler, but to suffer, to serve, and to give his life so that anyone who believed in him might experience forgiveness and eternal life. He is God walking on earth, come to rescue his people. The sign, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't a political handout to set him up as an earthly king, but was a sign to the people of his deity and his purpose in life. But the people don't get it. Their bellies are full, they've been provided for in the short term, and they want Jesus to do the same over and over again. And we said already, but in the same way, that's often what we want and expect from Jesus. But that's not why he has come. His perspective is eternal. He longs to give us life and the desires for us to be sanctified or grow more like him as his followers. We often don't get it. The crowd didn't get it. And what we see here is his disciples don't grasp who he is. And so in this fifth sign, John lays out seven signs, the walking on water, he is going to once again reveal himself as divine, as God, as he has already told him in chapter 5. So Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray, and the disciples, they head out in a boat to row across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. The route across the sea in this spot would have been about seven miles long. And the Sea of Galilee's uh, geography is unique, and it is prone to these kind of storms still to this day. The Sea of Galilee actually sits 600 feet below sea level, and the warm air of the plains that surround it mixed with the cool air coming off the sea, and so violent storms will just uh, seemingly come out of nowhere. Even today, it's not uncommon for them to put out warnings advising small crafts to stay off of the sea. And so the disciples are trying to row across this seven miles in, in what is likely equivalent to a, a wooden rowboat. And the accounts, other accounts tell us it's between three and six in the morning when Jesus is going to approach them on the sea. So the setting here is it's the middle of the night. It's dark as can be. The disciples are in the middle of the sea. They've rowed for hours and they've made no headway against the wind in the sea. The disciples are physically exhausted. Emotionally, they are terrified for their lives. And spiritually, the Mark 6 account says their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand who Jesus was. 
They, like the crowd, didn't grasp who he was. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand his purpose. And they're trying uh, during this time just to figure out who is this guy that we are following. They're in the dark physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And isn't it often in these moments where Jesus reveals himself to us as well? It's in those moments that we cry out in desperation and we follow him. When life is falling apart, when we have uh, no hope in our own power, when we are at our wit's end, it's then that we find ourselves broken and humbled and open to the gospel and open to the hope that Jesus offers. It is only in the storm that we, we often see Jesus for who he really is. When life is out of control and out of our power, we find our Savior. Because we can't know the power, the unfailing love, the goodness, the nearness, the provision of God until we walk through the storms. So Jesus' closest disciples, they're they're here. The ones that are going to take his message to the world after his death. The ones that have seen every miracle and just passed out loaves and fishes to five to 20,000 people. They just passed out. uh, They just saw 20,000 fed from five loaves and two barley bread. But yet they're in the dark spiritually. Now they're in the dark physically and with their lives at risk. And it's in this moment that they look up and they see someone walking on the water and it says they are terrified. Of course they're terrified. I mean, these guys are fishermen. You don't never regularly see people walking on water. But Jesus simply says to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he calms their fears and he boards the boat. So that's the second thing we see is that Jesus comes to us in the midst of the storm. It is in the midst of the storm that Jesus comes, that he is present in the lives of the disciples. You see, storms and life, trials in life, don't make us absent from Jesus. Instead, it is often in the midst of the storms that we find ourselves drawing closest to Jesus, recognizing our need, our dependency on him. Storms, trials, tribulations are just a part of life here on earth. And they are a part of life that we as Christians are not immune to. We will face trials as we walk this earth. The crowd, when they were fed, thought that Jesus had come to eliminate the storms, that he had come to eliminate the hard things, that he had come to eliminate the trials. But Jesus didn't come to merely save us from physical storms, but he came to give us eternal life despite the storms. And it's often those storms, those difficult times, where he reveals himself in the most profound ways. On the sea, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand who Jesus was. Uh, Mark says that their hearts were hardened. But after this experience, after this miracle, after the storm, at the end of the chapter, we are going to see that their lives and their understanding has been changed dramatically. So Jesus walks on water, and then it said the crowd found him in Capernaum. And they are ready once again to crown him as a political king. And it's here that Jesus tells them that he is the bread of life, like we talked about last week. He tells them that he came not just to feed them, but to give them eternal life. In the midst of this dialogue, John records, At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. The Jews said to themselves, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Again, the crowd doesn't understand who Jesus is. To them, he's just a teacher. He is just Mary and Joseph's boy, and they can't see beyond it to who he really is. They are blinded from the truth that he is God in flesh, the promised Messiah. From there, you can read it, but Jesus goes on to give this difficult talk about how only those that eat of his flesh and drink of his blood will be saved and have eternal life. Now, of course, he's not 
talking literally about eating and drinking of his body, but symbolically about believing and accepting his body as a sacrifice for sin. It's through Jesus' death on the cross that we are forgiven. But again, the people don't understand. And John tells us that many of his followers and many from the crowd, after that message, they walk away. But it says 12 remain. So put yourself in, kind of in the shoes of these disciples. They've seen Jesus feed the crowd. But then they were overtaken with the storms, with confusion, with a crisis of faith. They faced the storm at sea. They have seen Jesus walk on water. They have heard Jesus preach this really bizarre and confusing message. And they are lost spiritually. But, we see, but what we see is that it's in the midst of the physical storm and the spiritual storm that their faith is solidified and strengthened in Jesus. Look at this. Pick up in verse 67 of John chapter 6. So the crowds have abandoned Jesus. They have left. And Jesus looks over to the 12 and he says this. He says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Are you ready to leave too? And Simon Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a dramatic change from when they were in the boat in the midst of the storm. Right? In, this, in the boat in the midst of the storm, it says their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand who Jesus was. But by the end of the chapter, by the end of this message, it has all changed. They don't understand the dialogue or necessarily what Jesus is pointing to, but they now know after seeing Jesus come to them in the storm that he is the Holy One of God. Peter says, where else are we going to go? When Jesus revealed his divinity, when they grasped who he was, their lives were changed forever. Did they mess up again? Of course they did. But it was in the storm, it was in the questioning, it was in the trial that they saw and understood the power, the nearness, the greatness, the divinity of Jesus, and it left them changed. And that's the same that's true with us. When we grasp how great God is, how deep his love is for us, how complete his forgiveness is, and how stable his promises are, then it leaves us changed. And it leaves us clinging to him no matter what we are walking through. And more often than not, it's in the storm that we are willing to humble ourselves and turn to him and allow him to reveal the truth of his nature and his love to us. So maybe for you today, you are here and you are in a storm. Your world seems to be falling apart. You feel adrift at sea in your life. The things, the people you have turned to for identity, for purpose and hope have all let you down and you don't know where to turn. I know that's hard, but... But what if Jesus had a purpose for your storm? What if his purpose was to change your eternity, to reveal his love, and to forgive you of your sins and give you hope beyond the storm? For the disciples, it was in the midst of the storm that they understood who Jesus was, and it changed everything in their lives. When he came to them, their eyes were open, and they saw Jesus as God, as Lord for the first time. And when they let him aboard, when they let him into their lives, they were changed. Their eyes were opened uh, to who he was and their lives transformed. Jesus gave them a purpose. They were given hope. They would be used to transform the world. And most importantly, as they said, they knew the way to eternal life. So maybe you are walking through a storm today and Jesus is using that storm to reveal himself and call you to follow him. The storm might be self-inflicted or it may just be the result of a hard and challenging world. Regardless, the promise is that Jesus is present that he loves you, and that he waits for you to invite him in just as the disciples did. 
And the Bible says when you invite Jesus in, when you trust him as your Lord and Savior, he is able and he is faithful to forgive your sins. He promises you eternal life and he promises you a peace that is greater than your storms. So if you're here and you have never followed Jesus, your Lord and Savior, maybe this storm you're enduring has a purpose. Maybe it brought you here this morning and Jesus is using this storm to reveal himself to you. He doesn't come just to fulfill your earthly desires or calm the storm, but he comes to be your Savior, to give you a purpose, a hope, and through him to give you eternal life. The Bible says the wage or the consequence of our sin is death. But Jesus came and he suffered on a cross to the point of death so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life in him. He offers you forgiveness and new life in him if you will follow him. So if you're here and you are like the disciples and are in the midst of the storm, Jesus calls out to you and he says, follow me. Perhaps like the disciples, you've been around the church, you've been around Jesus, you've grown up in a a Christian nation, but you have never put your faith in him. If that's you, my prayer is that today is the day that he would reveal himself in his divinity and that you would follow him as your Lord and Savior, as the one that died and gave his life for you. And for others of you, you're already a follower of Jesus, but you too are in the midst of the storm. Take heart, because Jesus didn't come to remove all storms and all trials from our lives. Yet it's still often in those moments that he reveals himself further. That he reminds us of his goodness and his glory. In fact, the Bible doesn't promise that we're going to be free from storms. But instead, the Bible promises that the storms are going to come. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, He says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. You know about my persecutions and sufferings. What kind of things have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I've endured? He says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul says for the believers, trials are promised. But so is Jesus' presence and goodness in the midst of the storm. In fact, Paul would say, if you don't experience persecution, then Paul would say, you're probably not living out your faith. So if you are in the midst of that kind of trial, Paul's encouragement is to cling to Jesus, rest in Jesus, give it to Jesus. And my prayer for you is that in the midst of the trial, Jesus would reveal himself in a way he hasn't in the past. That you would see his glory in a new way, that, that he would reveal himself as sufficient that you would experience the peace that is only available in him. Philippians 4, Paul gives us this really, really practical advice on how to walk through trials and storms in this life. And if you know anything about Paul, he mentioned it there, but he experienced some incredible storms. Storms of hell, storms of persecution, of imprisonment, of death threats, of beatings, and so on. But this is what he writes in the midst of one of those storms. This is what he says is the secret. Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And Paul says, and when you do, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says to you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are walking in the midst of the storm, he says, do two things to center your life and your faith on Jesus. First, he says, rejoice. That's a little counterintuitive, but he says, no matter what is going on in your life, rejoice in the Lord and give thanks. In the middle of the storm, that's gonna, that might feel like a pretty short list, but he says, give thanks for what you can. Give thanks for your salvation. 
If you can, give thanks for friends and family. Give thanks for the provision you have. Give thanks for God's love. Give thanks for a Bible to read and a church to go to. Whatever it is, he says, rejoice, give thanks. And as you rejoice, allow that to reorient your relationship with God. And then secondly, Paul says, pray. He says, turn your trial, turn your storm over to God. Give it to him and trust that he is able. Trust that he cares. Trust that God loves you and that he is near. And Paul says as you do that, allow his peace to begin to guard your heart and your mind. If I want to be completely honest with you, this has been a, a stormy couple of years in my life and in my family's life. It's been an especially stormy uh, just last few months with, with some of the changes and uncertainty in our church. And God's beginning to answer some of those questions and those prayers and those challenges. But two weeks ago, I was in Arkansas uh, at a meeting. And as I was at that meeting, they began to sing a familiar hymn. They sang the hymn, What a Friend I Have in Jesus. And as they sang that hymn, it was as if, as, it was as if God hit my stubborn self over the head with a two-by-four. The first verse in the chorus go like this. The first verse says, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And listen to the chorus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So look at my life. God has been so faithful. He has provided every need I've ever had. He has provided every need this church has ever had. And yet for months, I've been carrying burdens that I was not intended to carry. I was trying to scheme solutions that I was not intended to scheme. All while God knew and knows the solutions we need. I was forfeiting peace and bearing pain I didn't need to bear because I wasn't faithful enough in giving my burdens to God. And didn't fully trust the solutions to Him. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are on the boat in the midst of the storm, remember God's past faithfulness. Rejoice and give thanks for his faithfulness. Rejoice in him and turn your storms over to him in prayer. Surrender it all and let him carry the burden. I know that sounds so simple. It sounds like a, a second grade Sunday school answer, doesn't it? And yet in this case, the simple wisdom is the wisdom to follow. Don't forfeit peace. Don't bear needless pain. But take it all to God in prayer. I love Simon Peter's response to Jesus asking him if he wants to leave like so many others had. Peter says, where am I going to go, Jesus? You are God and in you is eternal life. When your world falls apart, when people leave, when people disappoint you, when you don't understand your circumstances, surrender them to the one that can bear them, that has power over them, and that is the God of the universe. Don't run from God when the storms come, but turn to him and trust him to him. You pray, I've seen what you have done in the past, God. I have seen and I know that you are God and I know that in you is eternal life alone. So I will trust you. We say like Peter, I'm in because of who you are and what you've done. God is able. He is faithful. He is near. He is forgiving. He loves you. So in the storm, trust him. Last thing, we'll end here, but I love this final point. In the midst of the storm, Jesus doesn't appear to the disciples in a dream. He doesn't come to them in a cloud or in the waves, but he comes to them personally. And that's our final point today. Jesus reveals himself personally. Jesus isn't a mystery. The Bible isn't a secret to unlock. 
But Jesus, our God, is a God who reveals himself to us personally. Jesus comes to the disciples in their lowest of lows, and he reveals himself personally. The Bible clearly reveals, it invites you to investigate and to discover who Jesus is. Jesus is not a mystery, but he is a savior that loves you, that gave his life for you, and that desires to save you, forgive you, and lead you with purpose and love. In the Mark 6 account, we see something amazing. This is, this is Mark's account of this miracle. Mark writes, shortly before dawn, he, Jesus, went to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. The disciples cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And this is amazing because this, in this language, Mark is intentionally drawing us, the reader, back to Exodus chapter 33 when God revealed himself to Moses. Here in Mark, the language says that Jesus planned to pass by. That is similar language invoking us to describe, to remember that moment in Exodus where God passed by Moses and revealed his glory to him. It is also in that Exodus passage that God reveals himself as I am or as the one true God. And what does Jesus say when they ask who is it? He says, don't be afraid, take courage for it is I. Or in the Greek, it's the words ego ami, I am. Jesus reveals his divinity by walking on water, and then through his language, he says to them, I am the promised Messiah. I am God. It's that direct revelation here in the midst of the storm that gives the disciples the courage to trust him at the end of the chapter. In the midst of the storm, Jesus reveals himself personally to the disciples. But here's what makes it even more incredible. In Exodus 33, God reveals himself to Moses. But part of the reason that he reveals himself to Moses is because of Moses' incredible faith. And when Jesus walks on water, he doesn't reveal himself and come to the disciples because of their faith. But instead, he comes to them in spite of their faith. It says the disciples' hearts were hardened. They didn't know who Jesus was or what to make with him, but yet he still came, and that is great news for you and me. You see, Jesus doesn't come to us just when we have our lives together and figured out, but he comes to us, he is present, he loves us even when our lives are falling apart. Often we think we have to do everything right before we can go to God, before he will accept us, before we can be forgiven, before we can show up at a church. How many times have you heard or said yourself, I have to get my life figured out before I can go to church, before God will accept me? But the good news is, like the disciples, we don't have to have it all figured out to approach God. Instead, the truth is that Jesus comes to us, he walks on water, he comes to us in the midst of our failures and in the midst of our trials. He doesn't come to us only when we're living in obedience, but also when we're in the darkest of times and struggles. As the disciples were struggling with unbelief, They thought that Jesus was impossibly far off. They knew that they had left him on the shore. Back in Mark 4, they had a similar experience. A storm rose up, and at that time they knew that Jesus was with them because he was asleep in the boat. But this time they feared that he was far off. And it's the same for us. Sometimes when we struggle, we know Jesus is right there with us, but other times we fear that he is absent and impossibly far off. But the truth of the scriptures, the truth of this story, this narrative, the truth of this miracle is that there is nothing, the Bible says, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The truth is he will come to us. He will walk on water for us. He does that to show us that there is no barrier, that there is no amount of shame or sin that can ever separate us from his love. No matter what you are going through, no matter how good your life seems or how messed up it seems, Jesus is near and he invites you to turn to him, to trust him, and turn the storm or the trial over to him because he is able. Just a moment, Melinda's going to come and she's going to play for us. And as she plays, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and just pray. I love this passage because it's such an incredible picture of who Jesus is. Because no matter how hard life gets or what you're struggling with, Jesus has walked on water for you. He has crossed that impossible barrier that separates you from him. He is the perfect high priest who can empathize with you in all of your weakness. And so if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus with your life and experienced forgiveness of your sins, it is quite possible that Jesus is using your current storm, that storm, that trial in your life today, to reveal himself to you. The truth is he waits for you to invite him into your life, to invite him into the boat. The Bible promises that if you will humble yourself, if you will admit that you are a sinner, that you will trust that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and make him Lord, then he is faithful to forgive. He is faithful to grant you eternal life in him. Jesus is not distant. We don't have to be perfect to be in a relationship with him. But the truth is he comes to us in all of our imperfections. In all of our struggles and in all of our sin. And he says, come and follow me. He says, I have made a way. I will forgive you if you will follow me. And so if you're here and you need forgiveness of your sins for the first time, he says to you, I am here and I love you. I've made a way. Come and follow me. So as Melinda plays, I'd ask you just to bow your heads. If you're here today and you have never in your life trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, you can do that in your seat right now or you come and talk with me later. You can say a simple prayer with a heart surrendered as simple as this. God, I know that you are God. I know that you sent Jesus and he is your son. I know that, that I have sinned and I have fallen short. I know that I am broken. But I know that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life I couldn't live. I know he died the death that my sin deserved. And I know that he rose victorious over death three days later. God, I want to follow you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. And I trust and know that you are faithful to forgive my sins. And the Bible says if you surrender your heart and you make him Lord and pray a prayer, something like that, that he is faithful to forgive. And then if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to surrender your storms. To surrender your trials to Jesus, trusting that he is near, that he is able, that he is your provider and he is your sustainer. Would you give him your storms with rejoicing and thanksgiving for who he is and prayer trusting that he is able? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God, to prayer. Melinda's going to pray, and as she, or she's going to play, and as she plays, I'd ask you to pray and to carry your burdens to him right now, for he is able. Mm-hmm.